Matthew was a student at the University of Colorado, and he had a lot of baggage regarding Christians. And he showed some interest in having a conversation with someone about his questions about Christians and Christianity. And so a friend of him of his introduced him to a guy named Don. And the two of these guys started to hang out on occasion. And Matthew was pretty guarded around Don. Most of their conversations, he was a little bit standoffish. And that's because a lot of the frustrations that he had were about Christians from the distant and the not-so-distant past. And, and he wanted to work some of those things out. So he'd focus only on those frustrations. And he didn't know if Don was going to be very receptive to that stuff. But Don just decided he would listen. You know, he knew that he had a lot of responses, a lot of defenses that he could give for the variety of things that Matthew was talking about, but he also understood that there were some insensitive and pretty difficult things that had happened to Matthew specifically, and some oppressive things that had happened in the history of the church, and so he decided he didn't need to defend those things right off the bat. And this surprised Matthew. This approach kind of shocked him. You know, over time, he started to warm up a little bit. He started to demonstrate some trust with Don. As their friendship formed, he began to ask questions about Don's life. And he learned that Don's family was in a pretty crazy time. They were making a move for the summer to an area called Sun Valley, statistically one of the poorest and most dangerous areas of Denver. And Matthew was shocked to hear this. He couldn't understand why Don would move his young family to this area. And so Don began to talk to him about these, the way that Jesus cared for the poor and the way that Jesus talked about how his Christ-following people, people who are his disciples, should care for the poor. And this totally surprised Matthew. He, he didn't know that about Jesus, and he didn't really want to be around poor people himself, and so he was very confused how any of this stuff related to Jesus. And as he was thinking about that, he realized that he didn't know much about Jesus at all. And so Don recommended that he read the book of Mark over the course of the summer. And so in the midst of a really busy summer internship, he read this biography of Jesus, Mark, and then he went on to Matthew, and then he read Luke, and then he read John, too. He was thrilled with Jesus. And slowly but surely, his complacency and his complaining was changing to a curiosity about Jesus. And so he came back from his internship, he connected with Don again, and he had a growing respect for Jesus, but it was mixed with some questions about Jesus' claims to divinity and about the Bible, what is this and is it reliable? And so the two guys sat together, they had conversations together, he asked his questions, Don sought to help him seek answers to those questions, and eventually, Matthew put his faith in Christ. Now, do you know what I like about that story? It's not flashy, it's just pretty normal. It's a couple of people having some good conversations, at times difficult conversations about life and faith and Jesus. These are the type of conversations, the types of conversations that we're going to be discussing, considering over the next four weeks together. You know, we're starting a series today called Unreachable, having the hard conversations about Jesus. And what I want to do here for just a few minutes is say a couple words about the title because it'll give us some bearings from the start. The subtitle is that we're considering conversations about Jesus. The churchy word for this is evangelism. Sometimes we'll talk about sharing the good news about Jesus. Basically, it's the fact that Christ's followers have been transformed by God's grace through Christ. We've been saved from our sin. We've been reconciled with God. We've been given new life. We've been given a purpose, and we want to help other people get reconciled to God. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about in the course of this series, conversations about Jesus. Now, we've also put in the subtitle this word hard. 
These are hard conversations about Jesus. Now, this is not a very nice word to put into your subtitle, but I think that it's helpful. You know, it helps us to realize that evangelism can oftentimes be difficult for us. You know, some people, it comes naturally to them to talk about this stuff. For some of us, it's pretty difficult. Not only that, it also helps us to recognize that these conversations are hard because we aren't convinced that some people can, in fact, be reached. You know, a lot of us have come to the conclusion, whether intentionally or not, to stop trying to reach out to some friends or to, st- to stop doing it if we've already started to do it or not to do it at all because we're convinced that some of our family members, some of our coworkers, some of our friends cannot actually be reached. You know, part of sharing faith with people is being able to actually talk about where they're at and what their appropriate needs would be, what needs we need to address. Now, chances are most people fall into one of four categories. They're the four categories that we're going to be considering over the course of the next several weeks. So there are people in our lives who are skeptical about faith. There are people who are disinterested in faith. And some people are religious without faith. And then there are our family members. Enough said, right? Now, I'm sure that even hearing some of those categories makes you a little bit nervous, both because it confirms that it'd be really hard to reach these people, but also because in some cases, the very people we're talking about reaching are sitting next to you right now. And so here's the deal. We've, we've got a challenging task ahead of us for the next several weeks. We have been given a mission, and that is to make disciples. And that begins by introducing people to Jesus. That's the evangelism thing. And we all need help to do this together. And the difficult thing is that as we're trying to help all of us do this together, we're also doing it as we gather here today at any of our four campuses. Because we've got people joining us that would put themselves in the not Christian category and people joining us that put themselves in the I'm a Christian category. It's a difficult task. And so if you do put yourself in the I'm not a Christian category, then we would like to say, man, welcome. We're really happy that you're here, and we hope that you'll join us over the course of this series and consider what we're talking about. And if you put yourself in the I'm a Christian category, then we need to rethink, think afresh about evangelism. We need to engage in it. So come each weekend of this series, put the things that we're talking about into practice, and then I'd also encourage you to snag a copy of Randy Newman's book, Bringing the Gospel Home. This book is available in our bookstore as a resource for you to be reading over the course of this next month, and Randy Newman is going to be joining us here at the end of our series. So we're talking about unreachable, having hard conversations about Jesus. We're starting with skeptics. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 17 in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 34 together. If you don't have a Bible, we will put this up on the screens. And as we study this together, I want to point out four actions that we can take with with skeptics in our lives. All right, so here's action number one. Jot this down in your weekly welcome if you're taking notes. This can certainly be applied to all of our evangelism. Here it is, develop concern. Develop concern. Follow along. I'm going to read the first verse of Acts 17, just verse 16, and then we'll pause. Luke writes, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. My wife and I went to Israel for the first time a couple of months ago. We had an opportunity to go. Uh, Neither of us had been to Israel before, and so we were very excited to see all of these amazing sites and to see the people who live there and to reflect, the opportunity to reflect upon the God of Israel and the life of Jesus in the land of the Bible. Fantastic opportunity. 
You know, each of the sites, the significant sites of Jesus' life have been identified, or so they say. They kind of mark the spot where this kind of thing goes down. And so you've got Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. You've got his hometown of Nazareth. You've got Galilee up in the north where Jesus, a lot of Jesus' ministry went on. Then there are lots of significant things that happen inside the city of Jerusalem. His, the, the Last Supper, his crucifixion, burial, resurrection. At every one of these significant places, they have put a church on top of it to kind of signal the spot, kind of claim their territory. This is where this happened. And in each of these churches, you're going to find two things, relics and people. Uh, by relics, I mean all sorts of little figurines and icons and paintings and candles and decorations. And by people, I mean people. Lots and lots of people. They're here to see all of this stuff. Now, I'm not too turned off by the gaudiness of it all. It's a little bit distracting. But what was really troubling to me was the response of some of these people inside these places. And so you take, for instance, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. You go to the Church of the Nativity. And there are hordes of people as we all make our way down this little tiny thing because layers upon layers have been built up. And so we're trying to make it to the spot, the very spot where Jesus was born. And there are people who are so overcome with emotion that they're barely able to stand. They're just weeping because they're near the spot. You know, they're elbowing people out of their way so that they can get near this spot. They're weeping on the ground. They're rubbing their faces on this star that marks the spot. They're rubbing articles of clothing that they can take with them. This was multiplied countrywide at pretty much every site that we went to. And so over the course of 10 days or so of reflecting on this, I was grieved. Now, I didn't talk to these people one by one to really hear what they were thinking when they were doing all of these things, but my observations over several days led me to believe that most of these people were in bondage to idolatry. They were worshiping the spot, the created thing, rather than the creator, God himself. This is one way in which we are still very much like Paul's first century hearers in the city of Athens. When Paul entered the city of Athens, Luke tells us that he saw a lot of idols. Athens is one of the culture capitals of the world at the time, mixing intellectual and political and religious aspects of life all together. And since they had been under Roman rule for some 150 years before Paul got there, it was a mixture of Greek and Roman pantheons of gods. Athens is representative of pluralism at its best, all mixed up together. Luke says that Paul was distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I want you to scan down in your Bible if you have one, or you can take a look up on the screens to verses 22 and 23. Because I want to show you that Paul is seeing all of this. He's looking around. Listen to what it says. The text says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. This is a council. And he said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul wasn't simply glancing around as he walked through the city of Athens. He looked carefully, and he didn't have that far to go. If he's walking down the street, there are probably many, many options for him to stop in, to, to pop into a temple or a sanctuary, to see people on their faces worshiping idols. And according to the text, his seeing of this led to feelings of great distress. In a moment, I want to flesh out what Paul felt but I want to pause here just to note and to consider the fact that 
Paul saw. How much careful looking are we doing in our lives? I was talking to a friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago, and he was pretty shook up from an event, an experience that had happened the night before we talked. Uh, He and his family had gone over to a friend's house. They were kind of friends through their kids' sports or something, and so they kind of got invited over after the game to hang out. And so the kids were all doing their thing, and the adults were all doing their thing, and they're in the kitchen, and within a little while, alcohol started flowing, and then the conversation got pretty sloppy pretty quickly. And and this guy was shocked, and my friend that I was talking to was really shocked about the kind of conversation that was going on, the way that spouses were talking about each other and the colorful language that they were using to describe one another. And he kind of cataloged, went through a list of things that they talked about. Some of the things that they talked about were, in, were really inappropriate. And he looked almost embarrassed. You know, he couldn't believe that the, the kinds of things that these people were into in their lives. And I couldn't believe that he couldn't believe it. You know, it was obvious to me that his eyes were not open to what's going on in our world and in the lives of people that we see on a regular basis. It was obvious to me that he'd spent a whole lot of time with Christians, but he hadn't been spending a whole lot of time looking around carefully in his world to see what's going on. Looking carefully means proximity. It means that we're close enough to understand and to be affected by what we're seeing. For Paul, this led to feelings of great distress. Some translators have said that Paul's heart was eating him. His stomach was hot. It's a way of getting at the whole person. His emotional concern was severe. His spirit was roused within him, producing grief, great distress. He wanted to bring change. All that to say Paul was really upset. And he was really upset because idolatry robs God of the glory that's due to him alone. God isn't being rightly worshipped and it made Paul so frustrated. But idolatry also robs the people who are doing the worshipping of these gods the joy and freedom that they could find if they worshiped the one true God. We sacrifice and sacrifice to please the gods, but we don't experience any joy, any freedom. So Paul couldn't hold it in any longer. He's got fire in his bones, and so he's compelled out of concern to go and act. A lot of the reason that we don't feel how Paul felt is because we don't see what Paul saw. His motivation went from seeing to then feeling and then finally doing. So are we seeing what Paul saw so that we can begin to feel what Paul felt? Are you seeing the effects of a life lived apart from Christ? Do you you have concern for people in your life that don't know Jesus? Is it a a heart-eating, hot stomach type of concern? We can start praying for eyes to see what's really going on in our world and in the lives of the people that we are called to reach, people that we have an opportunity to reach. we got to develop concern. Action number two, build trust. Build trust. Acts 17, verses 17 through 21 tell this part of the story. Uh, Paul has seen, he has felt, And then we've got the word so, he does something about it. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Well, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, this council, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And Luke adds, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I love how Luke tells this story. He's always taking these long episodes and condensing them into short spurts so that he can keep the narrative moving. And in this case, he gives us just a little bit of flavor, just enough for us to catch what's going on. For instance, in verse 17, he summarizes Paul's method when he reaches a new city. This is how Paul normally does this kind of thing. Look at at what it says in verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He does that first, and then as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. This is Paul's method when he reaches a new city. He he gets around Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and then in this case, he goes to the marketplace. In other words, he goes to where the people are. This is the loop in downtown Chicago, Times Square in New York. He goes to where culture is made and where money is exchanged and where ideas are being discussed. He goes to where the people are, and he does it day by day. It took time. Paul is waiting for his ministry companions to come through the city. They're going to pick him up, and they're going to continue on with their travel agenda. But Paul is not content to sit and watch all of life go by in Athens. He's going to take time, take advantage of the moment that he has to get around people. So he does this day by day with those, Luke says, who happened to be there. This nice, vague phrase just talking about people. Real people, people like me and you. People with needs and concerns and struggles and questions. And most of them were worshiping in a local temple, worshiping idols. Paul goes to them. He spends time with them. He gets around real people. Noticing this highlights something hugely important for us. You know, we, we need to be present in order to build relationships with people. Big surprise. Building quality, trusting relationships is a matter of time and presence. You know, one of the huge hurdles that anyone has to get over when they're exploring Christianity is the trust hurdle. Think about the number of wacky things that Christians do in our world today, and you'd probably be a little bit skeptical too, Right? It's in this context that building trust becomes such a significant part of relating to people and talking about Jesus. I've been building trust, a relationship of trust with a guy named Mike for the last several years. He and I met at Starbucks because I saw a a, a tattoo on his arm that that was a a reference to Romans, the book in the New Testament. And so I struck up a conversation with him and it led to several lunch and coffee conversations over the last couple of years. And during our first lunch conversations, we were talking about a variety of things. And right in the middle of the conversation, he asked this question that kind of surprised me. He said, are you sure you're a Christian? And I looked at him thinking, what did I do to indicate differently? But yes, I am. And he said, oh, he said, most of the Christians I know are kind of cuckoo and have simple answers for everything. Translation, I think I can trust you. And so most of our conversations from then on were conversations about his questions and the kinds of things that he struggled with as he's trying to understand Christian faith and who Jesus is and what on earth this has to do with my life and his life. And eventually, though, it went into sharing an actual relationship, sharing real life stuff together. Most of our times together end by me just asking if I could pray for him about the things that we've just talked about for the last hour and a half or something. Time, presence, trust. In Paul's situation, 
Time and presence and trust led to significant opportunities. The some who happened to be there, Luke eventually gets a little bit more specific, and he says that there were some philosophers. Now, because I recognize how much you loved your philosophy courses in school, I want to briefly review a couple of the names that Luke drops here, okay? He talks about the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophies. Both of these referred to an entire way of life. So so here's a summary briefly of the Epicureans. The ideal in this system of thought was an undisturbed life marked by tranquility. These guys sought to be untroubled by involvement in human affairs because this is what they thought. If the gods are up there out of the day in and day out stuff that we deal with, then we should be like them. We should be out of the day in and day stuff that we deal with so that we could be at peace like they're at peace. That's the Epicureans. Here's the second group. This is the Stoics. The ideal in this system of thought was to live life in line with what is ultimately real, allowing this God of the ultimate to rule over my emotions. You know, you pursue this principle of reason so that you can have moral earnestness and a high sense of duty. This is very exciting stuff. Luke tells us that these guys love to bat this stuff around all day. They just love to have conversations about all of these things. Now, I'm guessing that most of us are not going to bump into a Stoic at Chipotle, but we will talk with people who have serious questions about life and about faith and about Jesus. We often use the summarizing term skeptics to refer to this group of people. Skepticism can be both good and bad. There's a really bad, arrogant, proud skepticism that asks questions only in order to destroy, not to develop, not to understand. But then there's a skepticism that should mark every person that walks the planet, asking great questions in order to understand. God has hardwired us with curiosity so that we'll ask good questions, investigate, question, think, understand, come to resolution and convictions. Paul knows this, and so Paul engages with them. They go back and forth in conversations about the most significant things in life. He understands that their questions are valuable, their questions matter, and that they're worth engaging, they're worth pursuing, and so he wants to answer some of them. You know, how comfortable are you with having these kinds of conversations with people about the things that you believe. My guess is that most of us are relatively uncomfortable in doing so. In some cases, the questions of skeptical people are our questions too. We can't wrestle in a wrestling match with that person about that question because we're wrestling with that question ourselves. You know, in our current cultural, intellectual climate, we're guaranteed to need to address the issues of absolute truth and the reliability and authority of the Bible and the history of the church and the divinity of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and faith and science and the question of suffering and the reality of hell and hypocritical Christians and the list goes on and on. And I'm sure that to some of you that list probably freaks you out a little bit. So I want to just provide three quick, helpful takeaways, three helpful thoughts as we try to engage with skeptics in conversations about faith. First, you don't have to go to seminary full-time, and you do not need to become the Bible answer person. But you do need to do some homework so that you have a foundation for your own faith and because we're responsible to engage people who have really good questions and to provide them with some answers. So grab your Bible and begin reading it in earnestness so that you can understand it. Grab a book. I would recommend something like the classic book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. 
Grab your Bible, grab a book like this, and jump in. Just start swimming in this stuff so that you're thinking about it and your own questions are starting to get answered. Two, you can tell a skeptical friend that you don't know. I can tell you they will appreciate your honesty more than your made-up answer. You just say, I'm, I'm not sure. And then you go talk to your friend, Christian friend, community group leader, a resource that you're going to look at. You're going to read. You're going to think. You're going to pray. And then eventually you're going to respond to them. And then lastly, one of the skills in evangelism with skeptics is trying to discern which questions are legit and which ones aren't. Now think back to the video that we just saw a little bit ago. Some of those questions were really good. They really need good answers. And some of them were completely and totally ridiculous. It's, it's our job to discern in the context of building trust and engaging people's questions, which questions are smoke screens, masking real issues, things going on in the heart, and which questions are legitimate barriers to faith. I'm going to begin to discern those things. This is all building trust. Paul built trust, and it serves as a foundation for more conversations. Action three, shift worldviews. Shift worldviews. Let me pick up the text, reading what Paul says to the council in verses 24 through 28. He says, the God who made the world, and this is a fantastic passage, by the way. I hope you enjoy every second of it. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In the last year or so, I have had several conversations with students who have asked formally to meet with me, seniors about to go off to college, wanting to, to question Christianity, to understand what it's all about. So I met with one girl not that long ago who came with a notebook in hand, a list of questions, and a pen, ready to go. I love that. And so I started this conversation off like I start most of these conversations, just by, by saying, I really affirm that you're coming to do this. I'm really thankful. And then I add a disclaimer. You know, the disclaimer is that that I'm going to do everything I can to sensitively listen to all of your questions and kind of just try to understand what's going on. I'm going to over-explain what has become very normal to me in my life, and I want you to know that I don't know everything there is to know about all of this. That did not come as a huge surprise to her. And so we launched off into this conversation, and, and she started asking some really good questions. And within just a few minutes, I realized that we were not talking about the same God. The God that she was talking about was a God that was created by a mixture of her desires and her culture and other religions, but it wasn't the God of the Bible. And so I realized that I needed to shift gears and I needed to take a step back. I needed to explain some of the big picture worldview kinds of things about all of life, who God is, the God of the Bible, and who he is, what he's done, how this all fits together. Because I wasn't going to be able to talk about Jesus until I was able to clear up some of the big picture assumptions, worldview assumptions. Part of doing evangelism with people who are asking really good questions, skeptical people, is being really clear from the start who we're talking about. You know, up until the last couple hundred years in the West, 
Most people who didn't believe in God didn't believe in the Christian God, the God of the Bible. But this is no longer the case in every case. Now, most people now who don't believe in God don't believe in an entirely different God. You know, Paul, Paul knew this to be true about his intellectual hearers in the culture context of the Areopagus. They, they didn't share a basic worldview. This consists of values and heart concerns and beliefs, a whole way of looking at life, thought patterns. And so Paul sought to shift their worldview. He sought to challenge it for them to consider the Christian worldview. He presents an entire structure of thought and action, conduct that coheres and is more true. And he did it by focusing on a variety of attributes of God that we find right here in the text. So what I want to do is quickly touch on the attribute of God and its reference so you can jot these things down. And we'll see that Paul is creating this big picture worldview. First, in verse 24, he highlights that God is the creator of the universe. Uh, contrary to the view of his listeners, uh, the world isn't a random collection of atoms, nor is, it, is reality a big melting pot on which all things are God. Instead, Paul presents God as both the personal creator of everything that exists and the Lord of everything that he's made. Which means as such, he can't be contained, stuck in some man-made building. He's the creator. Second, in verse 25, he highlights that God is the sustainer of life. We depend on God. God does not depend on us. So, so how crazy is it to think that the person who sustains life would need us to sustain him? It's crazy. He's the sustainer. Third, in verses 26 through the first part of verse 28, he says that God is the ruler of nations. The history and geography of every single nation that's ever been in existence is ultimately controlled by God. And this expansive control of the world and all nations would lead you to believe that God is distant, but he's not. It's quite the opposite. He's actually very near to us, graciously making himself known to us. He's the ruler. Finally, the last line of verse 28 highlights God as the father of humans. Although with respect to redemption, God's children are those who put their trust in Jesus, in creation terms, God is the father of human beings. We get our life from him. God is creator, sustainer, ruler, and father. Paul draws upon this massive theology of the Old Testament to challenge the worldview of his hearers. You know, it's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in doing evangelism, talking about Jesus with people who are skeptical about faith, is that I need to be right out front with my worldview, the way that I think about all things informed by God's word, and that I need to ask that person to do the exact same thing for me, to help me understand what their basic commitments are, the way they think about life, because then we've got something to go on, and we can constantly check it back against what God's word teaches. You know, when I shifted gears in this conversation with this girl, when I recognized what was going on and I knew that I needed to shift gears, it was really, really helpful because it opened up this massive opportunity. You know, all of a sudden, I wasn't just talking about, about this God philosophically, conceptually, having these idea conversations. What I began to talk about was something really satisfying to the mind and someone really satisfying for all of life. And when I started talking about God as creator, sustainer, father, ruler, I began to talk about God in biblical terms to fill up the content of what we're saying when we're using the word God. It was like I wasn't just talking theoretically and, th and theologically only. I was talking personally because this God has made himself known to me. I know him personally. And so I'm able to talk not only about who he is but how he's worked in my life. 
And it starts to stir the heart. It starts to inform the mind and it paves the way to real change because we're shifting worldviews, whole ways of looking at life. We've got to shift worldviews. Here's the fourth and final thing. We've said we've got to develop concern. We've got to build trust. We've got to shift worldviews. Finally, we need to believe God. Believe God. This is a helpful thing in our evangelism to believe God, right? Starting at verse 29, finishing to the end of the passage, Paul says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill, idolatry. In, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul couldn't simply jump to Jesus without providing a big picture, worldview shifting framework. But once he's done that, then he can address the issue of idolatry and repentance and Jesus the judge. Now again, Luke doesn't give us all the details here of what Paul said and how that all worked, but what I do appreciate about this passage is that it underscores the fact that Paul practiced what he preached. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul makes this statement that it forms the basis, one of the foundational thoughts of his ministry, and it's this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This conviction of all of Paul's ministry is clearly demonstrated here in Athens. You know, Paul believes that God, the God that he's just described is the God who works powerfully through the proclamation of the gospel to bring men and women just like me and you to faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so here... In these few lines, Paul talks about the inappropriate and unsatisfying nature of idolatry. He calls his hearers to repent of it, and he informs them that the judge is going to hold them to account. And then he goes one step further, and he says, the judge who's going to hold you to account is the one who's been raised from the dead. And they think this is ludicrous. In verse 18, we saw that Paul talking about Jesus and the resurrection got him an invitation to the Areopagus. Now, Paul talks about Jesus and the resurrection and gets him booted out of the Areopagus. These guys had no patience for this. They, they believed that bodies are bad and that spirit is good. And so why would anyone want to get resurrected into one of these things again? Why would we want to wear this again? We would be better if we were just far away from it. But that's not the only thing. One of their council members threw the gauntlet down on this very issue a long time before Paul showed up saying this about the resurrection. Here's his quote. When the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. No resurrection, and yet here Paul stands, courageously proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. He knows these things. I think he anticipates some of this response, but he presents the gospel despite their response because he believes that God works through the power of the gospel to bring salvation to people. So he doesn't flinch. This is a non-negotiable commitment of his. He's believing God. We need to believe God. We need to faithfully present the gospel because it has power. 
Now, this means that we don't rely ultimately then on our own innovations, our answers to questions, our own resources. We use those things, all of the things that I just talked about. We use all of those things in our conversations with skeptics, but we don't rely on them. And this also means that we can take some of the pressure off. We don't need to dwell on our insecurities as we think about engaging conversations with skeptics because the gospel is true and Jesus is Lord even over my evangelistic conversations. And so I don't need to stress out as much about it. God's at work. I'm going to believe in him. It means we need to believe the God that we just proclaimed as creator, sustainer, ruler, and father because he's at work through a powerful message about Jesus in the mouths of people like me and you talking to people about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for salvation. In Athens, God used this message in Paul's mouth to bring people to salvation. God confirmed some people in their pride and their idolatry. He instilled a desire in others to investigate further, and he saved some people. Some people believed the message. And seeing these different responses, I just want to share one more insight about evangelism with skeptics. These guys respond differently to the gospel, and I think that that helps us because we we need to shift the finish line. You know, at the end of the day, we want people to come to faith in Jesus, and we want them to be disciples of Jesus. But on the way, we probably should celebrate some of the small steps that people are taking. You've probably heard us talk about this at Christ Community Church before. There's a strategy, a three-part strategy that we've often talked about, and it takes time into consideration. Does anybody remember the three I words that we use to talk about evangelism? Talk about investing in a relationship with somebody, informing them of God's story, the gospel, and then our story of coming to faith in Jesus, and then we invite them to something at the church, whether it's a church service like this, or whether it's an event, or we invite them to come participate in something that our Christian friends are doing so that conversations can continue to unfold. We take consideration for the fact that this is a process. People are moving through, and people are responding differently, and so investing and informing and inviting people to keep coming, to keep participating. I'm, I'm sure that Paul didn't see this as a failure. Some people believed, and I'm sure that he rejoiced. Some people had more questions, and he was able to engage with them in it. I'm guessing it's going to go the same way for us. We need to believe God. We need to faithfully, courageously share the gospel with people, the good news about Jesus, because God uses it, believing in God, because he uses the gospel to save people out of mouths like mine and yours. Now, I said at the outset that evangelism is hard, and that's certainly the case when we're talking about having engaging conversations with people and providing serious answers. And so it's with compassion and it's with concern in our hearts that we trust, we build trusting relationships with people by engaging in honest conversations about their questions. We need to shift worldviews to challenge people to actually consider the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself to us, and we need to believe God. Because he works in people's lives as we rely on the power of the gospel. Evangelism, reaching, is like the engine that makes the mission of Christ Community Church go. And so over the course of this next month, we need to pray and we need to practice it. So let's do that, all right? Please stand with me. We're going to close in prayer. I want to hand things off to our campus, regional campus pastors. And I want to encourage you all here at St. Charles to take a moment to pray in your seat, to pray with your family, to pray at a kneeler, to pray with a prayer team member, to pray with someone in the atrium about these things. And we take seriously the responsibility to prepare 
over the course of the next month to be thinking about evangelism, engaging people in conversations about Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to reflect on this passage and to just be thinking about what it means to develop concern and build trust and shift worldviews and to believe you that the power of the gospel brings salvation to people. God, we pray that you give us a passion, a heart that would long to see people that we know get reconciled to God. God, we have been graciously included in your family through Jesus, and we want to help other people get included in your family. So God, I pray you'd help us to do it. Over the course of this next month, as we're preparing, thinking, reading, thinking, praying, thinking, God, would you help us? Would you sort through our thoughts? Would you guide us? Would you give us joy as we do it? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.